Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm the Deputy Director and Provost, and it's a great privilege tonight to get this event underway. I will soon be handing over to my colleague, Professor Christine Chinkin, who is a Professor of International Law and is attached to the Centre for the Study of Human Rights. And uh, Christine will tell us exactly how tonight's event will work out. Uh, It's a very great pleasure and honour to introduce this evening's event. Uh, We gather, of course, to commemorate and celebrate the life of Nelson Mandela. Uh, The broad story of Nelson Mandela's life is very well known, even more so, I suspect, following Idris Elba's portrayal of him in a film that was released last year around the time of his passing. Many things have been written and said since Nelson Mandela's death. Described as an icon, a leader, a radical, a luminary, the life of the former South African president has been memorialized in endless ways, and with good reasons, of course, as there are very few others who've had such remarkable influence on both their own country and the world. Perhaps what is less well known is that it was Mandela's love of the law which guided him in his struggle against apartheid. Professor Tandika Makandawiri, who is LSE's Chair in African Development, noted in his personal tribute that Nelson Mandela's commitment to democracy and rule of law was one of the qualities he most admired him for. After his passing last year, the LSE decided that it would be interesting to try to do something a little different by way of a memorial. Accordingly, I'm very grateful to my colleagues in the Centre for the Study of Human Rights who've put together this evening's distinguished panel to look at the law and Nelson Mandela. We're very much looking forward to hearing from George Bezos, Catherine N. Cole, David Dysonhaus, Lord Joffe, and our own Jens Meyer-Henrik, all of whom are very well qualified to discuss this subject. Of course, at LSE, we were very privileged to host a visit and speech by Mr. Mandela in April 2000. In that lecture, uh, Nelson Mandela, who was an honorary graduate of the University of London, was gracious enough to acknowledge the links between LSE and the fight against apartheid. In his talk, he said, and I quote, LSE, as part of the University of London, was in the vanguard of the great army of men and women across the world who responded to the call to isolate the apartheid regime. They insisted that human rights are the rights of all people everywhere. As a school, we're very proud of those involved in that fight, of those like Kwame Nkrumah and Jomo Kenyatta who studied at LSE, and those like W.E.B. Du Bois, who's a personal hero, and George Padmore, who made LSE a base for some of their conversations about pan-Africanism, conversations that continued in a way, we might argue, until the time that Malcolm X spoke here, very shortly before he was assassinated in New York. Today, LSE is rightly happy to advertise its links with the continent of Africa through our African Initiative and the school's institutional partnership with the University of Cape Town and through an expanding number of intellectual collaborations. But we also look back with pride on these years of struggle. Now, we all would agree that Nelson Mandela played a huge part in a long, wide and continuing struggle to affirm the humanity of everyone. I would like to end this introduction shortly by asking us all to pause for a moment to remember Madiba 
this evening. Uh, But first, and it's with some trepidation, I've been asked to read you all a poem that was written by the then poet laureate Andrew Motion, which Andrew read to Nelson Mandela on his visit to LSE. So the poem goes as follows. That straight walk from the prison to the gate, that walk the world saw and which changed the world, it led you through to life from life withheld, from broken stones with your unbroken heart, to life which you imagined and then lived, which once we shared in your imagining, but soon shared in the present that you shaped, the life which gave each human hope its chance of turning into truth and staying true, the life which showed us we become ourselves in part by watching you becoming you. Can I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, just to have a minute's silence uh, before I hand over to Christine Chinkin? People want to stand then. Please do so. Thank you, everybody. I now hand over to Christine. Thank you, Stuart, and thank you especially for reading that poem and for that uh, moving moment in which we all remembered the life of Nelson Mandela. Um, I would like to welcome you as well to the LSE on behalf of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, of which I'm acting director at present, and to say that the Centre is honoured to be um, carrying and being responsible for this evening of commemoration at the LSE. The event, as I'm sure you're all aware, is taking place on the 50th anniversary of the Rivonia trial, which was when Nelson Mandela and seven co-defendants were sentenced to life imprisonment for their acts of sabotage against the apartheid regime. As Stuart has indicated, the evening is going to focus on Mandela the lawyer and the role of law in the fight against apartheid how law gave a language and a stage to Nelson Mandela in his fight for justice. And I wish to state at the very outset that we are very honoured to have with us tonight two of our panellists, Mr. George Bezos and Lord Joffe, who were members of the defence at that trial 50 years ago. This is an extraordinary honour, I think, for us to have you here tonight and to talk about your memories of the trial. I think the warmth is evident um, to you of your presence here. Um, After that, it's somewhat mundane to say sort of housekeeping things like, please turn your phones off. Um, The event is being filmed and either have them on silent or off so it doesn't interfere with the filming. And anybody who wants to comment on the event, yes, we have a hashtag uh, for Twitter users at LSE um, Mandela. Uh, But my main task is to just quickly outline the format for the evening, and it's perhaps somewhat different from the usual Centre of Study of Human Rights events. First, we are having a presentation from Professor David Dysonhaus, who's going to give us a sort of contextual framework, contextual basis for the discussion of Mandela, the lawyer. Then I will hand over to my colleague, um, Dr. Jens Meyer-Henrich, who will then introduce more fully our distinguished panellists, make some comments, show us a couple of audio clips, 
and then importantly is going to moderate a discussion between our panellists in which various reflections of the trial, its significance, um, will be explored. After the panel discussion, which we think will be around 7.30, perhaps slightly later, we will have time for questions and contributions from the audience, and then the event will end at 8 o'clock. So my first pleasant task is now to introduce Professor David Dysonhouse, who is currently in the, there in the front row, but will come into the stage instantly. Uh, Professor Dysonhouse will shortly be the visiting Goodhart Professor in Legal Science at the University of Cambridge. He's coming to Cambridge in August. Um, he is from South Africa, and his current position, normal position, is as a professor in international law philosophy at the University of Toronto Law School. Um, David is the author of Hard Cases in Wicked Legal Systems uh, about South African jurisprudence. So, David, I'm delighted to welcome you um, onto the stage. Christine and I were very worried about bumping into each other. <laughs> it's an honor to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me, especially Jens. When uh, Jens first asked me to come, I wondered, uh, first of all, uh, why me? And uh, second of all, uh, what is there to say about uh, Mandela, the lawyer? Mandela was trained as a lawyer in South Africa in the 1940s. He opened his law firm with uh, Oliver Tambo in the early 1950s. That firm had to be wound up in the late 50s because of the pressures of the treason trial. That firm, while lucrative, did not do very interesting work. Mandela was working at the coalface against uh, the oppression visited on uh, black South Africans by the apartheid laws. And these were mostly cases that were dealt with, as far as I can tell, in the magistrate's court. And very few pages of uh, Mandela's autobiography are devoted to this period. His last appearance as a lawyer, though, is more interesting. In 1962, Mandela made his second most famous courtroom address. He'd been charged with the illegal incitement of workers to strike and with having left the country illegally. He asked the presiding officer to recuse himself on the basis that no white judicial officer could offer him a fair trial. Mandela said, however high his esteem and however strong his sense of justice and fairness. Mandela went on that to have whites presiding in cases involving the denial of basic rights to Africans was to make the judges judges in their own cause. The judiciary, pointed out, was controlled entirely by whites, who enforced laws enacted by a white parliament in which Africans had no representation, laws which in most cases were passed in the face of unanimous opposition from, Afri from Africans. The application, of course, failed, and Mandela was convicted. After a couple of months into a three-year sentence, he found himself back in court, charged with his fellow accused with the offences that would be the subject of the Ravonia trial. There is another sense, though, of Mandela the lawyer, which I think is more interesting and helps to understand the struggle against apartheid both during that era and uh, what happened afterwards. And uh, this sense of Mandela the lawyer is captured best by a phrase which I'll explain as I go along, which I term respect for law. I'm not the only person to notice this phenomenon. And now I'm going to quote someone I have never quoted before in my life and will never quote again, and this is the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. <laughs> Derrida tries in an interesting essay to explain why someone whose experience of the law 
was one of racist and political oppression maintained throughout his life and attitude of respect for law. Derrida analyzes Mandela's courtroom addresses and discerns, opening the quote, a man of the law by vocation, whose objections to the injustice of apartheid did not prevent him within the courtroom from maintaining a respectful admiration for those who exercise a function exemplary in his eyes and for the dignity of the tribunal. So let me start my attempt at uh, context with a very stylized, but I think not inaccurate sketch of law and politics in apartheid South Africa. As Mandela suggested in that courtroom address in 1962, the franchise was limited to whites, and whites staffed the judiciary. There was no Bill of Rights, so Parliament could enact any law it chose, and Parliament was in the grip of the National Party from 1948. The only legal challenges that were available were thus to executive implementation of the law, and a successful challenge could always be met by a statutory amendment. Moreover, the judiciary, while formally independent, was largely staffed by people who either were sympathetic to apartheid or at least were not deeply opposed to it. When the apartheid laws that were enacted during the 1950s were met by organized nonviolent resistance by black South Africans, the government enacted a succession of statutes that closed down arenas for such resistance. This culminated in the banning of the main organizations, the African National Congress and others, in the wake of the Sharpeville Massacre. In the face of the fact that the law was being used as an instrument of racist and political oppression, the NC and other liberation organizations resorted to illegal and violent resistance to apartheid. This resistance was met by ever more draconian security laws, including the Sabotage Act of 1962, which set out the offenses for which people were charged at the Rivonia trial. The Sabotage Act can be seen to mark a kind of sea change in South African law. In the treason trial of the late 1950s, the accused lawyers were able to exploit to the hilt the procedural safeguards that are part and parcel of a common law legal order, leading in the end to the acquittal of all of the accused. In contrast, the Sabotage Act marked the beginning of an era in which statutes gave increasing power to the state to detain its opponents and increasingly stacked the procedural odds against those charged with offences against the apartheid state. For example, the Sabotage Act reversed the presumption of innocence by requiring that an accused prove that he did not intend to produce the effects of the act with which he had been charged. And it's from this time on that torture becomes commonplace uh, for those who are charged with security offences just because it was so difficult to find out what was happening in the police cells and prisons of South Africa. In short, with the Sabotage Act, a significant step from the rule of law towards the rule of unlimited executive power had been taken. The legal and political story needs to be a little more complicated, however. Consider, for example, Bram Fischer, who came from a prominent Afrikaner family, had joined the Communist Party at some point in the 1940s, became one of South Africa's leading lawyers, and led the defense at the Rivonia trial. Charged himself in 1964 with offenses under the Suppression of Communism Act, he decided in 1965 to go underground, but was apprehended, found guilty, and sentenced to life imprisonment. From hiding, Fisher wrote a letter explaining to the court that his decision to jump bail was not intended to be disrespectful. Rather, in the face of discriminatory laws, the closing down of space for legal political opposition and security laws that made possible long periods of solitary confinement, in the face of such laws, he did not think that he could serve justice, he said, in the way that he had attempted to do 
for the past 30 years. And when he wrote to protest to the Johannesburg Bar Council, which had initiated proceedings to bar him for improper conduct, he said, when an, sorry, to disbar him, he said, when an advocate does what I have done, his conduct is not determined by any disrespect for the law, nor because he hopes to benefit personally by any offence he may commit. On the contrary, it requires an act of will to overcome his deeply rooted respect of legality. And he takes that step, continuing with the quote, only when he feels that, whatever the consequences to himself, his political conscience no longer permits him to do otherwise. He does it not because of a desire to be immoral, but because to do otherwise would for him be immoral. So here we see a claim that legal space for opposition had been so completely closed off that it was time for people like Fisher to go underground. But consider now that Mandela, who venerated Fisher, reports that during the Ravonia trial, he advised Fisher not to take this route, that is, not to go underground, stressing that he served the struggle best in the courtroom where people could see this Afrikaner son of a judge, president, fighting for the rights of the powerless. In other words, Mandela in 1964 estimated differently the space available for meaningful legal opposition to the apartheid laws. And now I want to just complicate the stylized story I told earlier a little bit more, and that is to suggest that the decision to undertake the armed struggle was in itself a complicated decision at the time. I think we have to understand that the Sabotage Act was in part a reaction to the first efforts of armed resistance, and the fact that at the Ravonia trial, the accused could not contest much of the state's factual case that they had planned and initiated sabotage did lead to a hardening of white opinion and paved the way for the more draconian security statutes to follow. Indeed, the clear involvement of the Communist Party in the higher structures of the ANC inevitably brought into the mix Cold War tensions, and this did lead to qualified support by the US and by the UK for the apartheid government. It would also be remiss, I think, not to notice that there was significant opposition within the African National Congress to the turn to armed struggle, that in the early 1960s there were elements within the National Party Cabinet that wished to open negotiations with the liberation organisations, and that it took until the 1980s until it was possible to reproduce the kind of conditions where one could uh, conduct an open struggle within South Africa against the apartheid state. In short, without offering any criticism of the decision to turn to armed struggle, we have to be aware both that the justification was not that self-evident at the time and that the decision helped to hasten the conditions in which the legal space for African political opposition was in fact reduced for a long time to something like vanishing point. I would like to suggest that at least in the late 1950s, that is at the time of the treason trial, it was still possible for white and black South Africans to see themselves as one community bound together by law. In a way, the spectacular failure of the state's case at the treason trial showed that political dissent in the face of oppressive laws is not easily construed as treasonous, especially when there are legal procedures available that make it possible for the accused to present themselves as individuals entitled to equality before the law that governs the entire community. Possible, but not easy. Consider that in his memoir of the Ravonia trial, Lord Joffrey recounts that when Hilda Bernstein approached him to be the attorney for the accused, he agreed to delay his immigration to Australia, but warned her that the majority of public opinion would be against the accused. Lord Joffe ruefully reports her response. Open the quote. Mr. Joffe, I think we speak a different language. You're talking of white public opinion. 
I'm talking of majority public opinion, which is not against, but for the accused. It took another 20 years before a South African judge was able to express a vision of all South Africans as one community. In 1985, Justice van der Volt acquitted five black political activists of a charge of treason based on their activities in their local community. And now I'm going to read a rather long quote from Van der Volt's judgment because I think it's quite interesting. Van der Volt said, Treason is a crime in a very special category. Where the ideas and political aspirations of those charged are part of this issue in this very strange and complex society of ours, and given the spectrum of politics of our citizens, from black to white and from far left to far right, with their grievances and aspirations, in most cases legitimate, and the often intemperate and exaggerated language, liberally spiced with political clichés, most of these citizens just striving for a better South Africa, a charge of treason should be very carefully considered and reconsidered before it is brought before the court. In conclusion, I'd like to suggest to you that Mandela, the lawyer, saw the law not merely as an instrument of political rule. Rather, he saw the law as holding out an ideal of community, of equal citizens, an ideal perhaps best exemplified in the courtroom when an impartial judge ensures that any exercise of state power is properly justified. That ideal maintained a precarious grip during the darkest years of apartheid, largely through the efforts of a small group of lawyers who were willing to accept Hilda Bernstein's challenge, and notable among them, of course, was uh, George Bezos. It was due to their efforts that Mandela and others were able to continue to respect the law, and that respect played a rather larger important Sorry, played a rather important role in the construction of a new South African order. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David, for that um, contextual background um, to the panel discussion that we are now about to have. So I will turn to Dr. Jens Mayer Henriks to introduce the panelists more fully and to moderate the discussion. Um, Jens is an associate professor here at the London School of Economics in the Department of International Relations. He previously taught at Harvard University for some years and is a member of the advisory board for the Center for the Study of Human Rights. And together with Dr. Allo, LSE Fellow in Human Rights, who's sitting here, um, initiated this event tonight, and we're very grateful um, to you for doing so. Um, Jens is the author of, quote, The Legacies of Law, Long-Run Consequences of Legal Development in South Africa, 1652 to 2000, an award prize-winning book. So, Jens, I turn over to you, and know you'll do a great job at moderating the discussion.
to living in our ghettos. African men want to have their wives and children to live with them where they work and not to be forced into an unnatural existence in men's hostels. Our women want to be with their men for and not to be left permanently widowed in the reserve. We want to be allowed out after 11 o'clock at night and not to be confined to our rooms like little children. We want to be allowed to travel in our own country and to seek work where we want to, where we want to and not where the Labour Bureau tells us to. We want to just share in the whole of South Africa. We want security and a stake in society. Above all, my Lord, we want equal political rights because without them, our disabilities will be permanent. I know this sounds revolutionary to the world in this country because the majority of voters will be African. This makes the white man fear democracy. But this fear cannot be allowed to stand in the way of the only solution which will guarantee racial harm and freedom for all. It is not true that the enfranchisement of all will result in racial domination. Political division based on color is entirely artificial. And when it disappears, so will the domination of one color group by another. The ANC has spent half a century fighting against racism. When it triumphs, as it certainly must. It will not change that policy. Exactly 50 years today, on June 12, 1964, the so-called Rivonia trial came to a close in South Africa. It led to the imprisonment for life of all but one of the accused. The infamous proceeding is widely regarded as one of the most iconic trials of the 20th century, not least because of Nelson Mandela's fearless and memorable statement from the dock, a snippet from which we just heard. The Rivonia trial, named after the white suburb of Johannesburg, where most of the accused were apprehended in July 1963, centered on the question of whether Mandela and his comrades were planning to overthrow the apartheid state by military means. It was intended as a show trial, meant to discredit and physically destroy the leadership of the ANC and its allies in the resistance to apartheid. Two of our guests of honor tonight played central roles in representing the nine accused and the cause for which Mr. Mandela, as you will hear in a moment, was prepared to die. This is what accused number one had to say about the first of our guests. As the general behind the scenes of our defense, he has managed and marshaled this most complex case with understanding and skill. His judgment of the strength of our case and of its weaknesses has been keen and stated without hesitation. As a friend, Joel Joffe has taken on himself 
Service is far beyond the call of a lawyer's duty. He has assisted in all the personal and family problems that have been beset us as though our friendship had been long and close. Nothing has been too much trouble for him or fallen outside his concept of a lawyer's responsibility to his client. We have come to admire and respect this quiet, courageous man. Today, Lord Joffe is a life peer in the House of Lords. Born in South Africa in 1932, he was educated at Witz, the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, where in 1955 he received undergraduate degrees in both commerce and law. Between 1958 and 1965, Lord Joffe worked as a human rights lawyer in South Africa, and before the Rivonia trial, he and his family had been preparing to emigrate to Australia. Yet once the trial was over, Australian authorities refused Joffe entry, and he left permanently for the UK on an exit permit after his passport had been confiscated. Though he continued to support South African causes, Lord Joffe made a career in the financial service industry, industry setting up Humber Life Insurance, but he also played an important role in the voluntary sector, notably at Oxfam, which he chaired from 1995 until 2001. Finally, and highly relevant for this occasion, Lord Joffe, based on notes that he took throughout the proceeding in 1963 and 64, wrote a remarkable, eminently readable account of the Veronia trial entitled The State versus Nelson Mandela, The Trial That Changed South Africa. Our second guest of honor is George Bezos. Born in Greece in 1928, he came to South Africa in 1944 uh, as a refugee from World War II. Mr. Bezos completed his law degree at Witz in 1950 and shortly thereafter began his career as a human rights lawyer. An icon of the legal struggle against white domination, he has defended more victims of apartheid than any other lawyer. He was involved in many high-profile trials and inquests representing, aside from the Rivonia accused, a long roster of clients, including Trevor Huddleston, Patrick Lakota, Meg Maharaj, Winnie Mandela, Popo Malefe, as well as the families of Chris Harney, Stephen Biko, and the Craddock Four. Mr. Bezos is a member of the National Council of Lawyers for Human Rights, which he helped found in 1979, and senior counsel at the Legal Resources Center in Johannesburg. During the transition from apartheid, Mr. Bezos served on the ANC's Legal and Constitutional Committee, and he participated in the drafting of the interim constitution at the Convention for Democratic South Africa. Mr. Bezos was also involved in the drafting of the Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act in 1995, which established the Truth Commission of South Africa. Equally important was his leadership of the team of lawyers who successfully advocated for the abolition of the death penalty in the first case heard by the Constitutional Court of a Democratic South Africa. In a foreword to Mr. Bezos' autobiography from 2007, Odyssey to Freedom, Nelson Mandela found these words to describe one of his most trusted comrades. George Bezos and I have known each other well for close on 60 years. Over these years, we have shared much and have grown to be close friends. George's identification with our struggle in defending victims of apartheid, his acting for my former wife, Winnie, his general success in court became widely known. All of this assured me early on that George Bezos would continue to defend our people 
in their struggle for freedom with integrity, great dedication, and complete commitment. While I was in prison on Robben Island and in other jails, George Bezos was one of my major lifelines. After my release from prison, we were able to spend a great deal more time together, and during my presidency, I often sought and received George's counsel on many legal, constitutional, and personal matters. He never once hesitated to assist and is considered a member of our family. His contribution towards entrenching the human rights that lie at the heart of South Africa's constitutional uh, foundation is impossible to overrate. The third and final person to join the conversation that is about to commence is uh, Catherine Cole, professor and chair of the Department of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Cole received her PhD from Northwestern University and has published widely in learned journals and had written or edited several books, including Ghana's Concert Party Theater and Africa After Gender. Most relevant for our discussion tonight is her fascinating account of the TRC, the Truth Commission, entitled Performing South Africa's Truth Commission, Stages of Transition, which also includes a discussion of the Vivonia trial. In her book, Professor Cole brings an ethnographer's ear, a stage director's eye, and a historian's judgment to bear on the vocabulary and practices of theater that matter to those South Africans who participated in the TRC. About her book, George Bezos had this to say. Cole's description of both the achievements and failures of the South African TRC is a substantial contribution to the debate as to what is justice. This is a book not only for lawyers and those involved in the dramatic arts and philosophers. The depth of Cole's research and clarity of the arguments advanced is a very useful contribution as to what ought to be done in our troubled world. So much about the participants of this evening's conversation, all three of whom we are delighted to welcome to the LSE. It is perhaps worth mentioning in aside that Ahmed Kathrada, one of the Vivonia accused, and Judge Dikan Moseneke, the current acting Chief Justice of South Africa, were also very keen to join us here in London tonight. Unfortunately, due to logistical problems, this was not to be. Allow me to conclude my remarks in the manner in which I began, with the voice of the extraordinary human being whose life we commemorate tonight. What follows are the last two minutes of Mr. Mandela's three-hour-long statement from the dock, delivered in the Rivonia trial on April 20th, 1964. You will notice that the cadence, the pacing, the tone of this segment are rather different, and deliberately so, from the segment I played earlier tonight. We will return to these stylistic differences later on in our conversation. But for now, I leave you with some of the most famous words ever spoken in a courtroom, words that fortified resistance to white domination, not just in South Africa, but the world over. This is what the AFC is fighting. Our struggle. is a truly national It is a struggle of the African people inspired by our own suffering 
and our own experience. It is a struggle for the right to live. During my lifetime, I have dedicated my life to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an idea for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. Mr. Bezos, these last few words in particular encapsulate Mr. Mandela's revolutionary turn in the 1960s. However, there were more than one Nelson Mandela. There was Mandela the lawyer as well, and you get to know him at WITS when you were students together in the 1950s. Could you share with us some of your recollections from those years? Yes. Uh, the University of the Witwatersrand named itself an open university with liberal values with a very small number of non-white students. Nelson Mandela was one of them together with a couple of students of mixed origin some whose parents were immigra immigrated to South Africa from India. They were discriminated against at the university. The university's policy was we are an open university. Anyone of any color can come provided he qualifies. But there will be academic integration, but sporting and social separation. It uh, is important to speak about the content of the student body in the late 40s and early 50s. Most of the students were adult 
They had fought in the war against Nazis, Germany and fascist Italy, in North Africa, in Italy, and eventually in Germany. In 1948, the Nationalist Party, consisting mainly of Afrikaans-speaking people, won the election by a small majority. Part of its policy was the closing down of the so-called open universities like this. This was taken up by many of us who were radicalized, but also by the small number of black students of whom, as one would have expected in retrospect, the leader was none other than Nelson Mandela, who spoke to us, encouraged us to reject racism. We became friends. He wanted to be the first black advocate in the country. The dean, Professor Harlow, himself a refugee from Nazi Germany, had different ideas. He told Nelson Mandela that to be an advocate was a difficult job and no black man would succeed in it. Why didn't he change his studies to become an attorney, a lower grade of lawyers, which even a black person could manage? He begged the dean to give him an opportunity. The dean wouldn't budge. He gave Mandela credit for what he had learned in the LLB degree to enable him to obtain a diploma in law, not a degree. Nelson Mandela was a forgiven man. Professor Harlow left Wits University and went to a leading Canadian university. When I happened to be there, I was asked whether I knew Professor Harlow, who had joined them. I said, yes, I knew he was my dean. He didn't speak to me for two and a half years because I was a member of the Students' Representative Council and proposed that the hundred pounds of student fees for the law dinner that excluded black people should be withdrawn from the budget. The dean thought otherwise and tried to persuade me. I wouldn't move. I became radicalized. And Professor Harlow's associates at McGill University informed me that Professor Harlow told them that he left South Africa because he couldn't stand apartheid. <laughs> That's why 
Nelson Mandela and I became very good friends. <laughs> and uh, we were friends for well over 60 years until he, he passed away on the 5th of December last year. And you also started working together very early on. Like in 1952, Mandela and Oliver Tambo opened their law firm, their first black law firm in the country. Uh, and they instructed you repeatedly as well. And this is when your relationship uh, deepened. Is that correct? Well, this is correct. Uh, uh, there was the defiance campaign in the early 50s. Nelson Mandela became volunteer-in-chief And he was charged and convicted of committing offenses. The Law Society applied for his disbarment because he had a conviction. There's something strange about the South African judiciary and some of us lawyers. Walter Pollock, a leading member of the bar, took the case for Mandela and argued successfully that Mandela may have committed an offense, but it was an offense in order to put an end to unjust laws passed by an illegitimate government. Pollock won the case. Judge Ramsbottom and Judge Roper gave a judgment that Nelson Mandela did not commit any offense of any uh, motive other than his concern for his patriots that were discriminated against that did not prevent him from being a good and honest lawyer. And uh, Mandela and Tambo had clients throughout the country. The first notable, there were a few other black attorneys, but they were really top class. And they couldn't do all the work themselves. And they briefed young advocates like me and a number of our colleagues at low fees and sometimes for no fee at all for them or us to defend people who were charged with past offenses, who defied unjust laws, and we became very close friends. Thank you. Thank you. You heard what I had to say, nevertheless. <laughs> I made brave speeches in the great hall of the University of the Witwatersrand before we had any microphones. <laughs> um, you were not a lawyer, per se, in the treason trial. 
um, but you had many conversations about them because you knew one of the accused very well, with whom you shared an office as well. Can you maybe tell the audience a little bit about this other important trial of the period, which, as David Eisenhower has pointed out, differed in key respects to the Rivonia trial, to which we turn in a moment? In 1955, a document was put together by over 6,000 people at a square in Cliptown to which white, black, people of Indian origin, mixed race parentage, could gather together, and they adopted the uh, Freedom Charter. We, the people of South Africa, have gathered together to put this charter on the map. South Africa belongs to all who live in it, and there will be equality and other provisions. And for these rights, we as one will fight until they are achieved. At the end of 1955, in December, shortly before Christmas, 156 leaders of the African National Congress the Indian Provincial Congress of Natal and the Transvaal, the Colored People's Organization, and the Congress of Democrats. Now, why would there be four organizations? It was impossible for people of different colors to get together to any square to protest or to any venue in order to discuss things, and this is why they were. They were arrested because it was alleged that the uh, Freedom Charter was a communist-inspired, Stalinist-supporting uh, organization, and they were guilty of treason. They were brought to the military headquarters in Johannesburg and they built what Council Harold Hansen described a wire cage in which the 156 were put in in the supposed courtroom into a preparatory examination for a charge of treason. They were eventually acquitted by three judges in 1961, more than five years. Nelson Mandela, Oliver Tambo were the accused together with the others. It lasted such a long time because top lawyers, Bram Fisher, Rex Welsh, Bernard Berenger, H. C. Nicholas, and Sidney Kentridge became a member of Sir Sidney here. Did an absolutely marvelous job led by the great giant of the legal profession, Easy Mainfields. Young lawyers like me were recruited as volunteers to do research 
to compare what was in the Freedom Charter together with principles enshrined in other democratic constitutions. And they called the Professor Murray to say that this was a communist document. He was cross-examined to the ground. He was talking absolute nonsense, even though he was a professor of uh, politics at the University of Cape Town. Because what do you say about the provision in the Japanese constitution and the Hungarian constitution uh, and the American and the uh, Nordic countries? Substantially similar provisions. These are democratic principles. The th- one of the judges' room, the leading judge, didn't like what was happening, and he asked some nasty questions of uh, Nelson Mandela when he gave evidence, a wonderful witness. And uh, he asked, you want everybody to have the vote? Would you give the vote to children when the people that you want to give the vote to are not educated enough or clever enough in order to exercise the vote properly? This upset Nelson Mandela very badly. His father was illiterate. Two of the accused of the 156 had never been to school but had, had risen to the ANC ranks as uh, fairly good <coughs> politicians. To cut a long story short, they were acquitted. And the three judges three judges, said that it was a democratic document. A great victory, but in the meantime, their organization was declared as an unlawful organization, and another period was started. Would you allow me to bring Professor Cole into the conversation? Um, you've written a lot about um, this period in particular, and, and you talk about changing repertoires of resistance. Could you maybe sketch in some of the background as well that is necessary to understand what was going on at the time in terms of law and resistance more generally? So in one of the chapters uh, of my book on the Truth Commission, I look at the treason trial Um, Nelson Mandela's trial in 1961 and 62, and then the Rivonia trial, sort of looking at how how those three trials uh, lead us to a certain place in South African history. And in Mandela's own writing, he says that our appearances in court became occasions for exuberant political rallies. And what is one of the great paradoxes of the treason trial and, and a number of these other trials that Uh, the very activities they were meant to curtail, political meetings and rallies, they rather enabled. So among the 156 accused at the treason trial, jail meant that they could all be together and have conversations all day long. Uh, So, um, and actually for, for, for many years on end, Anthony Sampson, who's written about this period, called the treason trial the biggest unbanned meeting of the year. Uh, Vernon, Uh, 
Berenger, in his opening statement at the treason trial, framed it very clearly as being a battle of ideas. And this is from his opening address. A battle of ideas has indeed been started in our country, a battle in which on one side the accused will allege are poised those ideas which seek equal opportunity for and freedom of thought and expression by all persons of all races and creeds, and on the other side those which deny to all but a few the riches of life, both material and spiritual, which the accused ever should be common to all. What happened at this trial, and indeed all of them, is that they also became not only occasions for political meetings among the accused, but also political rallies. It's said that at the treason trial, as many as 10,000 people gathered outside. And we see over the course of the years from the defiance campaign in 1952, the treason trial started in 1956, the incitement trial, the Rivonia trial, all the way up to 1964, hearing the address that we heard at the start of this, is a tightening of rules, banning orders, censorship, an escalation of the stakes with the death penalty and the Sharpeville massacre, uh, uh, as well as um, 90-day detention laws, an increase in international visibility of the struggle, and a gradual focus on a single figure of Nelson Mandela. So going from 156 accused to a single accused from, uh, in, in his incitement trial. One of the things he noticed at that trial was the behavior of the other attorneys, who often seemed embarrassed. He noted that the magistrate had a diffident and uneasy manner. And in his memoir, he says that was quite a moment of epiphany for him. He says, the other attorneys also seemed embarrassed, and at that moment, I had something of a revelation. These men were not only uncomfortable because I was a colleague brought low, but because I was an ordinary man being punished for my beliefs. In a way I had never quite comprehended before, I realized the role that I could play in the court and the possibilities before me as a defendant. I was the symbol of justice in the court of the oppressor, the representative of the great ideals of freedom, fairness, and democracy in a society that dishonored those virtues. As he realized his role as a symbol, he began to enhance that symbolism, and he did it through a number of things, including his use of clothing. He was always a very, very sharp dresser. Uh, and in the treason trial, you saw him in spectacularly well-tailored suits. And then there's the very famous appearance in the incitement trial wearing African clothing, which was quite unexpected. Um, and um, we also have him moving into using statements in the trials as a political platform. So the one-hour speech of mitigation in the incitement trial and then the three-hour speech from the dock in the Ravonia trial. So he really came to understand, and many others did, these trials as a continuation of the struggle by other means. And it was an arena in which he, as a lawyer, was particularly adept at maneuvering. He could position himself both as the inheritor admirer and administrator of the law with a capital L, and at the same time someone outside the, the law, someone who's accused and eventually a convicted prisoner. So he quite adeptly turned the tables. Um, and as uh, um, uh, George, Mr. Bezos has said, 
has said, the courtroom is often the last forum in which freedom fighters speak out against tyranny and justify their actions, not only to the judges, but also to their fellow citizens and the world at large. Mm -hmm. Lord Joffrey, um, now that we have sketched in some of the background of the Rivonia trial, um, maybe you could uh, acquaint the audience with the trial. What was at stake? How did you become involved? Uh, And how did you first encounter Nelson Mandela in the Pretoria uh, consultation room. Yes. <clears throat> well, I was a pro- I was an, atter- an attorney, um, and uh, was approached by firstly by Hilda Bernstein, the wife of uh, accused number ten, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Rusty Bernstein, to handle. Who told me that her husband uh, had been arrested and was held incarcerated in, uh, in jail under the 90-day law. She was unable to contact him, but if he was uh, charged with anything, would I defend him? I agreed. And then, one by one, Winnie Mandela came, and Albertina Sisulu, and the wives of all the accused, and asked that I should act on their behalf if they were charged. Now, the position in South Africa then was that all the accused were locked up in solitary, incarcerated in solitary confinement, and no one knew what was happening, who was going to be charged, what the charges were. It was a time when people vanished mysteriously without charge into 90-day detention. And... The problem that the first problem that I encountered, apart from the fact that it is not easy to organise a trial where you don't know what the charge is, who the defendants are going to be, and when even the accused do not know that they are accused. And it was in this atmosphere that we had to deal with the trial. And the first problem was that all the people who had been arrested were not people who had any money, so how did we get any funds to mount a defence? And there was no person in South Africa who would be prepared, or no person with money in South Africa, who would be prepared to contribute to their defence. So in desperation, we wrote and got in touch with Canon John Collins, a Canon in St Paul's. And John Collins miraculously succeeded in raising from his congregation sufficient money for us to fund this trial. John actually was, in due course, also banned from South Africa, and I think and I fear that his career in the Anglican Church was not enhanced by his activities in South Africa, but happily his son, Justice, Mr. Justice Collins, is, I believe, in the appeal court today, presiding as one of the judges. Now, the position, as I think Catherine has outlined, in relation to the atmosphere in South Africa changed radically from the first treason trial. In the first treason trial, it was originally held in Johannesburg with 158 accused, and crowds used to assemble outside it cheering on the accused. And this disturbed the the learned judges and the police. And therefore the trial was moved to Pretoria. The 
counsel in, the, uh, in that particular trial brought an application to the court to have the trial transferred to Johannesburg, but uh, a deal was eventually re- reached that the police would provide a bus every day to bus all the accused from Johannesburg to Pretoria so that the trial could carry on in Pretoria, but the followers would have difficulty getting to Pretoria. By the time the Ravonia trial had begun, the position was entirely different. The police were desperate to keep the, the, the black population and supporters of Mandela away from, away from the court, and the result was that there were police, uh, uh, police uh, uh, um, structures along the road from Johannesburg to Pretoria, and it was very difficult for the for the uh, um, supporters to get there. But nonetheless, when the trial started in the Palace of Justice in Pretoria, there were police everywhere. But there was a black, a, a number of black followers that managed to get through to the front of the court in Church Square. And between them were rows of policemen, all armed with stem guns, and dogs with police dogs growling and in the egg there and holding the spectators at bay. And when you went into the court, there were policemen everywhere. In one case, when I moved to my seat behind George and the other erudite counsel, there was a policeman sitting in my chair and he didn't want to allow me to get into my chair. And eventually his superior ordered him out. And so this was the atmosphere in the court. And then the court itself was quite remarkable because on the, the court was, by custom, divided with white spectators on the one side, black spectators on the other side, sitting in front of a dock which had been specially constructed for this trial to take 11 accused. And on the white side, it was filled with policemen and warders who had disguised themselves by wearing civvies instead of, uh, instead of their normal uniforms. And then this, this atmosphere in the court of police from every corner, which did not, uh, which made one feel a little uncomfortable. But the accused managed this extremely well. So that was, that was the courtroom itself. And if I, if I so you, you didn't actually know, neither of you, that Nelson Mandela was one of the accused. And I, no. I understand that the two of you, together with Arthur Chaskelson, the first president of the Constitutional Court, went on a trip to Pretoria, okay. uh, ultimately got access to some of those who had been detained, and then walks in Nelson Mandela in, in prison guard. Yes, now that is correct. What had happened was the prosecutor, Dr. Utah, was obsessed with publicity, and he would never talk to the defense team. He would only talk to the media. So we relied on the media for information about the trial. And then one day, suddenly, the media said there was going to be, the accused would be brought to the Pretoria jail the next day. So George, Arthur Chaskelson, and myself, Brian Fisher was elsewhere, arrived at court, and there was no one there. So we went to see the attorney general, Mr. Uh, Mr. Ryan, who was the prosecutor's boss. And we said, what's happening? And he said, the prosecutor, Dr. Utah, never tells him what's happening. <laughs> and he said, indeed, uh, uh, with contempt in his voice, 
He said, and indeed he brought me an indictment some time ago which was so poor that I threw it out, out and said, start again. And he never came to see me since. And so I can't tell you what's happening. So we said, well, can't you get in touch with him? So from his office, he phoned the prosecutor in Johannesburg and said, well, when are the, when, who is going to be charged? And, the, uh, and Utah said, well, he couldn't tell his boss who was going to be charged. But if we all appeared the next day in court, we, uh, we would be able to see who was going to be accused. So from that, we adjourned to the prison, George, Arthur, and myself, and in the waiting room, uh, and then George said, uh, the um, official in charge at the prison said, you want to see your clients, but who are your clients? He said, we weren't quite sure, but then George volunteered that Cecilia was probably one of the clients. <laughs> so we, 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 they said, wait, and then we waited, and then for, you know, for an hour, which was customary with the police, uh, with the prison officials, and then we were ushered into a room, and there were ten, uh, ten accused with what, well, uh, who were in civvies, who were Walter Sisulu and Governor Becky, and I could tell you all their names, but not for the moment. And then suddenly the door opened, and in strolls Nelson Mandela, flown from Robben Island, where he was serving a sentence for five years for leaving the country without a passport and for military training, I think. And uh, he was flown down and he entered into the court, into the interview, dressed in regulation garb for black prisoners, which was short trousers like a, like a young boy, a, shirt, a torn shirt and open sandals. This outfit is designed particularly to humiliate black prisoners. But Nelson Mandela walked into this, was rolled in this room, and with his natural charm and natural ability, he simply took command of the whole interview, and uh, that was really the start of the defence. Uh, from the lawyer's point of view, we knew who was being charged, but we were not yet totally aware what they were being charged for. But eventually an indictment was, uh, was prepared which perhaps George later might comment on. Yes, it's a nice segue. If I could bring in Mr. Bezos again. Um, how did you go about, you and your team, uh, to devise a legal strategy? And, and how damning was the evidence that was found at Lillisley Farm? Um, how did you even imagine a defense, uh, uh, given the fact that, that 10 of the documents that were found were in Nelson Mandela's handwriting uh, at the farm? Well, it was October 1963. An indictment was served, and uh, uh, I would ride from Johannesburg to Pretoria every morning, early in the morning. And Bram Fisher came down our driveway in his young daughter's little Volkswagen, and he came out very excited with a copy of the Rand Daily Mail, the most progressive newspaper in the apartheid era, with a banner headline, 
UN calls for the release of Rivonia accused. He puts it on the table, on the patio of our home, said, you're going to Pretoria, take this to them and tell them that they dare not hang them after this. And unanimous resolution was passed by the United Nations on the 10th of October, 1963, calling for their release. I went and bought half a dozen copies on my way to Pretoria, put them on the table, and there was rejoicing among them that uh, the world had taken uh, notice of them. There was only one vote against South Africa, which had been expelled from the United Nations, but it had a seat when its own when it was accused, and uh, there was one abstention. Salazar's uh, Portuguese dictatorship uh, abstained. For the rest, the world was behind them, and this strengthened their uh, resolve that this was going to be a political trial. They are going to say that we did this not for ourselves, but for the benefit of the oppressed people in the country. And we developed uh, a scheme. Nelson Mandela had given evidence in the treason trial to good effect voluminous cross-examination, brilliantly led by Sidney Kentridge. But Nelson floated the idea that he should not go into the witness box. There was a problem. His diary and other papers when he returned from uh, his trip outside had been left at at the Rivonia farm and was in the possession of the police. He had notes in it of the support that was promised by African leaders and uh, even a section of uh, the parliamentarians in the House of Commons. He said that he did not want to be cross-examined in the witness box in order to betray what was really secret promises made by others and that he wanted to be on the dock make the statement on the dock we all agreed that that should happen Uh, part of our team thought that Walter Sasulu and uh, the others should also not give evidence under oath. There was a problem. At the meeting where they gathered and they were uh, arrested uh, was a document called Operation Mayabuya, a blueprint for the sabotage that was taken place, had already been taken place, uh, that the struggle should go over to guerrilla warfare. 
if that document was not rejected as Walter Sosulu maintained that it was a meeting not to adopt it but to discuss it and the views of those present were negative they didn't want guerrilla warfare and evidence had to be led by credible witnesses that the document had not been adopted and Walter Sosulu was the best witness and first witness to give evidence as to he, as the leader of the African National Congress, would have none of it, and that uh, uh, Bernstein was against it. Uh, There were a couple who may have been lukewarm about it, but nevertheless it was not a document which was adopted. Walter Sosulu was an outstanding witness. Can I talk about our bet? Tell me, tell me. Please do, yes. Joel was one of those who said, no, nobody should go into the witness box because they will be cross-examined and they wouldn't stand up to Utah's cross-examination. I had a different view. I knew Utah better than uh, all because I had a substantial criminal practice in political cases. And I believed that Utah was there in order to propagate the ideas of the government. I was proved to be correct. Utah forgot to cross-examine Sosulu on his evidence on Operation Mayabuya. And uh, we had a bet bet with Joel. And what was the bet? That if, in fact, Utah confined himself to the propaganda of the government in the trial and didn't concentrate on the evidence and the facts, the loser would have to pay for the lunch for the rest of the trial. (laughs) (laughs) Walter Sosulu was called immediately after Nelson made this brave speech from the talk. Utah, when, when... Ram Fisher said that Mandela would speak from the dock. He stood up and he said, you must warn him that what he says uh, outside the witness box uh, is not proper evidence. The judge had contempt for Utah. He wanted to be called Dr. Utah, and he had a Dinkum Doctorate law, of Law's degree. But the judge would not call him Dr. Utah. He called him Mr. Utah. He loved to be called doctor. And uh, uh, Joel maintained that that, uh, he wouldn't uh, take on Walter Susu on... on, uh, 
the political first question by Utah. Sisulu in his, <laughs> in his uh, well, how would you describe the voice that I imitate? Falsetto <laughs> voice. Uh, how many members did the African National Congress have on the last count 120,000, my lord? And did you, Sasulu, purport to speak for the peace-loving Bantu people in South Africa with only 120,000 members? <laughs> Dr. U- sorry, Mr. Utah, says Sasulu. Uh, how many members does the Nationalist Party have that's governing <laughs> us? <laughs> Utah didn't know. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, Sisulu was a very, very calm man. And when this cross-examination continued about political, Sisulu lost his school. And he said, Mr. Utah, I wish you were a black man for one day in your life. And if you were, you wouldn't ask the sort of questions of me that you have been asking. My 15-year-old son came here with his mother this morning and he was arrested. His mother was not told where he would be taken because he did not have a pass. He was not even obliged to have it because he's only 15. But my wife, Albertina, protested and she was threatened always. If you talk to a policeman, you were threatened. You must stop interfering with the execution of his duty. Otherwise, he would uh, arrest you. I understand that you have a son of a similar age, Mr. Utah. How would you have felt if your son was arrested? And uh, Gerald sitting behind me pulled my gown and said, you've won the bet. <laughs> but I don't know if I can afford to pay for the lunches <laughs> in the future. We didn't expect him to do, to do that. But that was the uh, a light moment of the trial. But Sesulu was isolated from the rest of the accused for the period of six days that he was in the witness box. I'm sh- we were sure on the instructions of Utah. And this makes his performance even more remarkable because I think um, he did such a convincing job uh, that he demonstrated convincingly, I think, to the, to the judge that the ANC had not yet adopted a policy to militarily overthrow the apartheid regime. And I think this performance is probably only rivaled by perhaps the most famous one out there, namely Mr. Mandela's statement from the dock, which actually chronologically came before the cross-examination. And Professor Cole, if I could uh, call on you again to tell us a little bit about 
um, the orality as, as well as the document itself. Before I turn to Lord Joffrey to give us some of the background that is necessary to understand how this, this important speech came to be drafted. So uh, there's three things that I thought I might speak to, and I want to preface that by encouraging people to read the speech There are many copies available online. The ANC website has a copy. Also, the Nelson Mandela Foundation has a copy that very carefully works from an audio recording that was made uh, at the trial and was uh, subsequently recovered uh, by the British Library, and it's that recording that uh, we heard today. There's also a copy of that recording at the National Archives in South Africa, which I've listened to, And um, I guess the first thing I want to talk a little bit about is the length of it. Many people who were there, including um, those uh, on the panel tonight and Mandela himself, remember it being either five hours or four hours long. So it really made an imp- its duration really made an impression on those who were present. The actual recording is 176 minutes long, so it's a three-hour speech, uh, which is a very, very long speech. If you think about it as a one-man show, that would be quite extraordinary to have a three-hour one-man show One of our uh, most um, literate American playwrights, Tony Kushner, has a play on at the Berkeley Repertory Theater right now, where I'm from, and that runs for three hours and 45 minutes, which has everyone in a bit of a a lather. Uh, It's quite a strain on the performers, and there are 12 actors in that show, and then it's also quite a strain on the audience um, to have uh, something that runs for that duration, and from what I can tell, there were no breaks. Um, What's particularly interesting as you listen to the full recording is that there are two moments where uh, uh, there was an attempt to have an adjournment. After an hour, uh, Mandela has, uh, is making a transition in his speech and he says, now, now my lord, at this stage I would like to refer very briefly to a number of newspaper clippings. And the judge said, well, yes, before you get there, I will take the adjournment. And Mandela just seems to have carried right on. He said, I was just about to refer your lordship to a number of newspaper clippings. Uh, And it seems as though he goes on for another hour. And uh, then at about the two-hour mark, uh, the the judge says, well, Mandela, it is time for the court to adjourn. Um, And and on my printout, that's page 34, and it goes on to page 46. So just thinking about this as an act of endurance, um, and one done in such extraordinary circumstances. Here's someone who was beautifully, immaculately dressed in his professional life in the 50s. Um, At his previous trial, he made this quite dramatic choice to appear in African clothing. And then, as we've heard from Lord Joffe, how he's dressed at this trial in uh, shorts and sandals with no socks um, in this specially constructed dock that has the audience behind him. No, as far as I know, no microphones for amplification, only for recording. Um, and he just keeps going. Um, it's a kind of marathon um, for the performer and actually for the audience. Another thing I wanted to comment on is the tone. Um, There is a book out called Nelson Mandela, A Very Short Introduction by um, Eliki Balmer, and she has a chapter in that on Mandela as a performer, and she she puzzles over um, uh, Madiba's very elegant um, interpersonal uh, communication skills and his, his dressing with his verbal performance, which she characterizes as, quote, curiously immobile, um, uh, strain, affectless in tone, stiffness, wooden, 
Um, one of the things I'm struck by listening to the recording is that there actually is a modulation of intensity that's quite notable. Um, uh, sometimes it's a, a change of tone, pacing, intensity. He does phrase often in a few words at a time, uh, which when I thought about it, I realized he was speaking without amplification, and that would be a very effective way, not just in the courtroom, but more significantly at political rallies, which often didn't happen in places with very poor acoustics. Um, so I think some of his speaking style comes from uh, from that, and there's a percussiveness to his delivery, um, and a sense that one actually can't interrupt him, and indeed that turned out to be true. Uh, I'm also struck by uh, how accessible his sentences are, how unadorned his prose. And there's a story he tells in the speech um, that gets uh, particularly to this. He tells a story about being at Ravonia. And uh, this is in the context of trying to explain why among the evidence uh, in in court are some lectures on communism that are in his handwriting. And he wants to explain why that is the case. They are not his lectures. And he talks about being at Ravonia where an old friend who he deliberately does not name uh, was working on lectures and this is the one time the judge other than trying to get an adjournment uh, does interrupt him and try to push him to name who it is and and he doesn't Uh, but he talks a little bit about encountering this person working on speeches about communism and uh, this old friend is trying to convert him to communism and uh, shares the lectures and Madiba reads them and he comes back and he he says these are far too complicated for the ordinary reader. The language is obtuse and they were full of usual communistic cliches and jargons. This is Mandela's words. Uh, and, and he had an argument with the author about whether it was possible to revise the lectures to make them more accessible while obtaining their, uh, 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 still keeping their, retaining their intellectual complexity. And so it was in that context that he, be, he was asked to actually redraft the lectures in a more accessible style. And then the last thing I'll say just about the content is to point people to an excellent essay by James Boyd White in a book called Acts of Hope, which does a close reading of the text, um, the ways in which the speech offers a justification for his life, an explanation of his motives and methods. He makes certain admissions and denies other aspects of the case. Uh, Bram Fisher, in setting up the speech, says the purpose of it is uh, so that uh, one can have regard for the mode of character and political background of the speaker. His opening lines identify himself as, first of all, the first accused. He says, I hold a Bachelor of Arts. He identifies himself as a practicing attorney and a convicted prisoner. So he highlights in that opening moment the complexity of his identity. He goes on also to talk about his um, African royalty and the extent to which he's an admirer of the law, uh, even as he is being uh, held as as someone who has violated the law. Um, And at the core of it is is a, a, a meditation on violence, as well as poverty and dignity. Um, I think this statement alone warrants a conversation of of several hours because it's so fascinating. Unfortunately, we're running out of time very fast, Um, so I'm going to give the floor one more time to our uh, honored guests, Lord Joffrey and and George Bezos. I'm just going to phrase my questions uh, in succession very quickly. Mr. Bezos, for you. If needs be, are those the most important words you ever uttered in your long and distinguished career as a lawyer? 
and George Joffe, Mr. Mandela asked you to type uh, the final draft of the statement he delivered. And yet he was not entirely convinced that the compromise solution Mr. Bezos suggested um, was to his liking. Can you maybe start us off by telling us the story before I close with Mr. Bezos? Yes. <clears throat> Basically, it's important to realize that the whole, that from the accused, Nelson Mandela's point uh, and the accused's position in the trial was, yes, they were prepared to face a charge of sabotage and by their conduct to allow... Uh, to, to effectively allow, uh, ensure that there was no way that they would avoid responsibility for their actions. Their basic approach was leaders must accept responsibility for their actions and that this was a political trial and therefore their lives were of secondary importance. What was of critical importance was that the world as a whole should be apprised of the evils of apartheid and why there was, after years of, um, of non-violent uh, opposition, there was no option available other than to resort to violence, but limited violence. Now, at the... <coughs> um, and the whole... Uh, the, this, the statement was prepared in order to deliver this message. We accept responsibility. We don't ask, ask to be found not guilty, but we had no alternative. And um, Nelson Mandela, the night, a few days before his statement, gave me his handwritten uh, his handwritten. Uh, talk, which we had discussed at previous discussions, and it had in it, I am prepared to die. George had tried to prevail on him at that stage to actually moderate it and add in, if needs be, because otherwise, as George put it, it was an invitation to the judge to hang him. And this was not the desired objective of the defence. <laughs> anyway, I took this statement and took it to my typist at uh, my office and said, you must type this out, but leave out I am prepared to die. I just couldn't face the prospect of Mandela and the other accused being hanged. So we pre the next day I arrived with the speech give it to Mandela, typed, beautifully typed, but with no, I am prepared to die. And he looks at, he takes it, and then the next day he comes back and he gives me a note, which I have over here in his handwriting, which effectively says, kindly replace the clause that I had originally put in this thing, and however, and he wrote out the clause itself and did accept George's advice and put in if needs be. <laughs> and therefore we had the final, uh, the, the final talk, as uh, you've heard, you've heard it uh, amplified over here. Thank you, Mr. Bezos, the final word belongs to you. What are your feelings about the statement, the trial? What would you want future generations to remember 
about the heroic acts that both you and Lord Joffrey were involved in in 1963 and 1964? Yes. Uh, Nelson Mandela was convicted on four occasions. The first, the France campaign leadership. They wanted to uh, destroy him. He survived it because of Judge Rabb's bottoms and Judge uh, Rob. He was convicted of incitement, leaving the country without permission. And <clears throat> also inciting an unlawful strike. He was sentenced to five years in prison. The uh, Law Society again served papers on him on Robben Island to show cause why he should not be struck off the road. I was a regular visitor as the nominated lawyer to visit him at Robben Island. And he discussed with me how he was going to face this application to kick him off the role as an attorney for, again, committed criminal acts. He had a wonderful idea. He wrote a letter to the registrar to say, I am a prisoner. I want to appear in person to oppose this application. <laughs> I need to be taken off the island for a period of two weeks, and I want access to the court library in order to prepare myself. <laughs> Well, whoever took the decision thought that this was too clever by half. <laughs> they, they withdrew the application for his, <laughs> his uh, disbarment. He expected to be convicted and he expected to be sentenced to death. Uh, I was of the view that uh, to say that I am prepared to die was an invitation, as Joel told you, to, to hang him. You know, you can't take uh, a Greek out of uh, Greek learning. The example of Socrates who was sentenced to death. And in terms of the rules, he had an option to suggest to the, prose to the prosecution and the jury of 500 an alternative sentence. Generally speaking, in ancient democratic Greece, the option was accepted. Okay, you go out until you become out of Athens until you become an old man going to the exile we've had enough of you 
And uh, Socrates foolishly, when asked for an alternative, said, I have done no wrong. Other than to tell you to obey the laws and to do govern Athens for the benefit of the people as a whole. If I say that I am not prepared to accept the punishment which the jury imposed on me, they'll say, oh, here was the old man who was telling us how to respect the laws and he himself does not respect them. I'm not prepared to escape. I am not prepared to apologize. I am not prepared to do this, that, or the other. And he drank the poison that was offered and died. Uh, and I gave him, uh, Nelson, an example. You know, you shouldn't invite death. And this is why he uh, agreed. Joel, in his first book, uh, says that this saved uh, Mandela's and the other lives. Uh, I disagree with him. There were much more important reasons why they were not sentenced to death. The UN resolution. The young people throughout the world protesting against their governments, including the United States, including the United Kingdom, for doing profitable business with South Africa, and they were actually calling for a boycott and uh, calling on the banks to stop the loans, which was really, ten years later, one of the main reasons why the Africano whites racists saw the writing on the wall and started negotiations. And uh, this was, this was, I think, the most important reason why they were not sentenced uh, to death. I think it's a very nice note to end on the importance of, of international pressure on authoritarian governments. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Lord Joffrey, Mr. Beasley. wonderful insights, reminiscences, and just such a rich um, discussion about the events of 50 years ago. Uh, we do have one further contribution from another person who has been involved with many of the people at, at the time of the trial. So, Sir Nicholas Standen, 
if you would like to uh, make your contribution, can we have the microphone, please? Uh, well, I've been uh, interviewing uh, Joel and George and also the three surviving defendants from the Rivonia trial, Kathy Kathrada, who's Indian, uh, Dennis Goldberg, who's a white Jew, and Andrew Malingeni, who is a black African. Uh, and the, the contribution I would just like to make is really two things. One is that what is very, very striking is the extraordinary courage, both of the lawyers and of the defendants, Kathrada, who had a very good chance of uh, succeeding on his appeal, as advised by George when he visited uh, uh, on the island, uh, refused to appeal because he didn't want to show, he, because he wanted to show solidarity uh, with his comrades. And so he spent 26 years on Robin Island in circumstances where he had a very good chance of having uh, had a successful appeal. Dennis Goldberg, when, he was, uh, when they first met in consultation, uh, offered, said that he had been told that the evidence against him was very strong and he offered to take the blame for everything that had been done if it would help his comrades to escape being hanged. The lawyers, uh, it, it sounds like a slam dunk when you hear them talk about Percy Utah uh, and they were probably the finest array of defence counsel and attorney ever assembled in uh, a South African court uh, and there was a lot of competition with the treason trial and other trials. Arthur Chaskelson, who became the Chief Justice and First President of the Constitutional Court. Vernon Beranger, who was a uh, Doberman Pinscher, a Rottweiler of a cross-examiner, uh, who tore uh, various witnesses to shreds, including Durker. Uh, but these were, uh, and of course, Bram Fisher, who, th th there has been reference to the rule of law, Bram Fisher was the lead QC in the team and a former chairman of the Johannesburg Bar Council. The first things that he did as leader of the defense team was to organize the escape from the jurisdiction of the chief prosecution witness, Bob Heppel. Uh, he was himself uh, a co-conspirator with those who were accused in Rivonia but happened not to be there that day. And when asked to take the defense to lead the defense, he ran the obvious risk of being identified in court by the farm workers. Uh, he tried he, to, he, in the middle of the night, he went up to the safe house where Dennis Goldberg had parked his van and freewheeled it down a hill so as not to incriminate the people who owned the free house. Uh, and he, in due course, uh, when he was sent to prison, he was before he was sent to prison and he went underground, he was disbarred. Uh, and this caused him more pain than almost anything else, because in his mind, there was no conflict between his duty as an officer of the court uh, and the fact that he was flagrantly uh, disobeying all sorts of laws. And if there's a strand that runs between his statement from the dock when he was sentenced to prison for life the following two years later and that of Nelson Mandela, it is precisely that the rule of law with which they both profoundly, in which they both profoundly believed, required them to break the law. Uh, and because in each case they considered that the laws that they uh, had to obey were immoral because they were not passed by the majority population and therefore there was a higher duty. And one of the things that uh, is striking about uh, one's reading and talking to the people who were in both the defendants and the lawyers is the extraordinary courage 
uh, of all these very diverse people, different races, different backgrounds, lawyers, uh, sons of immigrants. Uh, in the case of Bram Fischer, uh, the grandson of the first prime minister of the Orange Free Colony, the son of the uh, judge president of the Orange Free State, a man tipped to be chief justice or prime minister of South Africa, who threw it all away uh, and ended his life dying in prison. All these people, they came together in this extraordinary collaborative effort. Uh, as you have heard, very difficult clients to have when your main job is to save them from the gallows, uh, and everything they do is designed to make it more likely that they are going to risk being hanged. And one of the extraordinary feats, uh, as one reads the detail, of the way in which all four, all five of the lawyers, counsel and attorney, set about their task, is that to have achieved a result in which none of the defendants were sent, uh, sent to death, sentenced to death, notwithstanding uh, the way in which the defendants uh, refused to kowtow, refused to uh, deny their involvement, uh, is an extraordinary legal feat. Uh, it involved um, a very careful analysis by Bram Fischer that the key thing to do was to prove that the Operation Mayabuya had not been implemented, and in that they were successful. It involved George Bezos persuading his comrade, his colleagues, that in order for that to succeed, they had to expose Walter Sisulu to cross-examination, otherwise his denial would not be given credibility, uh, and his belief uh, vindicated, as it turned out, that Sisulu would wipe the floor with Utah, Utah having a PhD, Sisulu having left school after a few years. Uh, the cross-examination by Vernon Berenger of the police, uh, the painstaking analysis by Arthur Chaskelson of the hundred and uh, over a hundred acts of sabotage to demonstrate that were alleged, to demonstrate that none of them could be laid at the door of any of these defendants. It was a remarkable collaborative effort. Uh, and having spent 30 years uh, as an advocate, it is difficult to think of a piece of litigation in which it would have been more fun uh, to have been involved than this one. <laughs> fun doesn't sound what it was like, although I talked to Dennis Goldberg and Andrew Malangeni a couple of weeks ago in the Supreme Court. It was the first time Andrew Malangeni had gone back. And there in the cells, before they went up into the dock, on the wall was the Freedom Charter. And Dennis Goldberg read the Freedom Charter. And then they walked up the stairs. And uh, Dennis, on his two crutches, when he got to the top, raised his arm and his thumb in the ANC greeting and shouted, Amandla. Uh, the way they talked uh, uh, about their lawyers... Uh, was with a warmth and a respect uh, and an admiration uh, that was really very moving. Thank you. I'm afraid we are just about out of time, so we won't be able to have the usual audience um, question and answer I will, however, ask Dr. Allo if he would like to make a very brief statement or question, as he was also instrumental in uh, inspiring this evening. Um, thank you. Um, my name is Aula. I'm from uh, the Center for uh, Study of Human Rights at the LSE. Um, 
I just want to say thank you to everyone on the panel for really an engaging contribution. Uh, also, thank you to George Bezos and uh, Lord Joffe for uh, standing against injustice and showing us uh, what it means to do so and uh, what it means to be vindicated by history. Um, I want to do my contribution by way of a question, which is uh, um, a question that relates to a certain narratives that circulates um, about the Rivonia trial. Uh, a narrative that presents the Rivonia trial as a watershed moment and also a transformative moment in the liberation struggle in South Africa. And George Joffe uh, was among the people who uh, uh, made that argument. Uh, and in fact, your book on the Rivonia trial was subtitled The Trial That Changed South Africa. And my question is, in what sense is the Rivonia trial uh, the trial that changed South Africa? That is... The Nationalist Party in South Africa, at the end of the trial, basically secured the kinds of things that it wanted, right? It has managed to dispose the leaders of the radical movement from the political sphere. It has also secured support of uh, the white community and, and also the West. So in what sense has the Rwanda trial, um, you know, gets the credit for the kinds of transitions that we saw in South Africa? And most importantly, can we actually not make an equally compelling claim that instead of actually bringing about that transition in South Africa, uh, Rivonia actually put off, it postponed or delayed the transition in South Africa by at least two decades or even more? Just would like to see what you think on that. Thank you. <laughs> whether, whether either Lord Jeffrey or George Bezos would like to answer that in... 30 seconds? <laughs> George. George can speak with greater authority than me. He's been practicing law for so long in South Africa. Uh, I want to know, I couldn't hear you very well. Uh, is the question that the Rivania trial actually uh, extended the period of, uh, extended the period of white rule? It probably did, but it wasn't the trial. <laughs> it was the unfortunate capture of the leadership and the imprisonment uh, on Robben Island. Uh, it's true that African countries managed to uh, put an end to the yoke of, of uh, colonialism uh, in Africa. Uh, G Professor Gwendolyn Carter and uh, Tom Karras described the South African situation as uh, domestic colonialism. It was, what has been proved is that it's more difficult to get rid of uh, uh, colonial uh, 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 colonial uh, rule uh, more easily when it's foreign than when it's uh, domestic with tremendous resources economic, military, uh, 
a minority which thought that it would be ruling uh, uh, for at least a thousand years. Uh, they didn't learn the, the lessons of Hitler, who only lasted seven years, but um, uh, they thought they, the, the predominantly racist Afrikaner government thought that they were there forever, ever. right up to 85. They thought that oppression would make their power uh, everlasting. Uh, they were proved wrong. And you know, every bit helped. Uh, Oliver Tambo was introduced to a young woman in the United States, the daughter of a very, very rich man, who was taking part in protests on the campus, and Oliver was told about it. And uh, he asked to see her on one-to-one -one basis, and thanked her for her activities on the campus but said to her, why don't you t talk to your father? <laughs> the multimillionaire. And he took it, his daughter's <laughs> question seriously, and he was very close to one of the leading banks in the United States in the beginning of 86, and the bank refused to renew the short-term loan that it had given to South Africa. And it caught on. And even the very conservative Swiss found it very difficult to resist the pressure that the people in jail, and particularly Nelson Mandela, for whose liberty they called. And uh, this is why it was delayed, but the delay was inevitable. And I think that the people that were convicted uh, couldn't have done better than they actually did by forsaking their families their freedom, and they were prepared, if needs be, <laughs> to sacrifice their lives to bring about fundamental change. I hope I've answered your question. Just two things left for me to do. The first is, I'd say we haven't had time for as many questions from the audience, but there is a reception upstairs on the sixth floor in the Shaw Library, and um, people will be able to speak um, to the speakers, at least for a short time, up there. So the lifts are outside. And finally, I would like to, again, thank Jens, 
and uh, Dr. Allo for the inspiration and for putting it together in this way, the events people, and of course our absolutely wonderful panellists. So thank you again. <laughs>